Boy, it's an honor to be here. Welcome here at Latham, at all our campuses. As was noted, my name is Pat Murat. I'm an elder here at Grace Fellowship, which just means I'm getting old. Is that getting old, that joke? I say that a lot. You know, there's a question that Jesus often asked his disciples. And I think it's a question that's pretty relevant to you and I today. This is the question. Why are you afraid? You know, in the world we live in, it's pretty easy at times to be afraid. Political uncertainty, rumors of war, terrorism. It seems like every time we turn to the news, even the local news, it's not good. But maybe that question resonates on a more personal level and you think of a circumstance perhaps that either you or a loved one are going through that gives rise to fear. Maybe it's a recent diagnosis. Maybe it's the loss of a job, financial stress, relationship issues, fear that looms on the horizon related to changes that are coming. Maybe it's the fear of being alone. Real, immediate, in-your-face circumstances that give rise to fear and anxiety. I was reading in a recent USA Today report that referenced the study done by the National Institutes of Health in 2016. And in this study, they conclude that fear and anxiety are on the rise and becoming an epidemic in this nation. And they cited that over 40 million American adults struggle with some form of anxiety. It supports what a friend of mine, a psychologist friend of mine, told me just a few weeks ago when I asked her. She's been in practice for a number of years. I said, what's the number one reason why people come and see you without hesitation? She said, fear and anxiety. And then she said, if you allow the circumstances that give rise to fear to grip your heart and preoccupy your every thought, it will wreak havoc in your life. Hey, maybe that's one of the reasons why Jesus wages war on fear. I don't know if you know this, but of all the commandments that Jesus gives in the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, the most often cited imperative from Jesus is around this issue of fear. And he would often say to his disciples, do not fear, don't be afraid, take courage. Why are you afraid? But if you were to read through those passages, you'd have to step back and ask yourself the question, really? Is he serious given the circumstances at hand? Take, for example, in Matthew 8. Jesus is traveling by boat with his disciples. Pretty familiar story. And all of a sudden, out of nowhere, a massive storm hits. The wind is blowing. The waves are pounding the side of the boat. And the disciples are scared out of their mind. They're also a bit frustrated. Because as the waves are roaring, Jesus is snoring. You remember this? He's sleeping. And when they think, man, they are losing the battle to this storm and the boat's about to go under, they run to Jesus. They shake him. Don't you even care? We're about to die. Save us. Jesus looks at them, and into that reality, he says these words in verse 26, Matthew chapter 8. He says, why are you afraid? Really? The boat is going to sink, right? Really? Or how about Matthew chapter 10? 
Jesus is sending his disciples out onto a mission stage, on the missionary journey, if you will. And, and he's telling them, you're going to go to the surrounding territories and proclaim that the kingdom of God is at hand. But there's going to be some challenges in this missionary journey. He says, the first thing is you're going to bring nothing with you. No, no extra clothes, no money. It's just going to be you depending on the goodness of other people. And then he says, you're going to be sheep among wolves. And then in verse 17, he says, you're going to be taken by the local council, brought into the synagogues, and you're going to be flogged persecuted for my name. And then he says to them in Matthew 10, 28, do not be afraid. In fact, he says it three times in this passage. Do not be afraid. Do not be afraid. Do not be afraid. I don't know about you, but after that flogging part, I'd be given second thoughts about going on that mission. You know what I mean? Or how about Luke chapter eight? There's a man by the name of Jairus. He's a synagogue leader, and he is fearing because of the imminent death of his daughter. She's about to die. His only daughter, 12 years old. And when he hears Jesus is in town, he runs to Jesus, and he's telling him the story and the problem, but as he's having that conversation, some of Jairus' servants interrupt and say, don't bother the master anymore. Your daughter has died. And Jesus, you could just imagine the fear that gripped Jairus' heart at that moment. And Jesus immediately looks at Jairus and says in verse 50, Luke chapter 8, do not be afraid, just believe. And you could just imagine how Jairus must have felt. How can I not be afraid? And finally, in John chapter 14, it's the night before Jesus is going to the cross. He's in the upper room with his disciples, and then he drops the bomb. And he says, I'm leaving you. To which the disciples were like, come again? Where are you going? Why are you leaving? What's going to happen to us? And no doubt anxiety gripped their hearts when Jesus said, I'm physically leaving you. And then Jesus said in John 14, 27, these words, do not let your hearts be troubled and do not be afraid. Really? They must have been thinking, but you're leaving us physically. You see, with all these do not be afraid commandments, the question remains, how can we not be afraid in the middle of real, immediate, in-your-face circumstances that all but scare us to death? You know what's interesting is you will see here that Jesus never denies the reality of the circumstance that's scary. He doesn't do that. He's not disconnected, in other words, from reality. The storm is real. The challenges of that missionary journey are real. Dying and death is real. Change, transition is real. But what he's saying is, I don't want you to fear the reality of the circumstance. As a Christian, he's saying, I want you to live boldly. I want you to live courageously for God's glory, even in spite of the reality that scares you. You say how? Well, I think the story in Mark chapter 2 that we're going to walk through now 
I think it sheds some light. And I believe if you've been in the faith for any period of time, what you're going to hear today, it's just a reminder. But the principle, the truth that is at play in this story, the story of the paralytic who was forgiven and healed, the principle at work here is the foundations for Christian courage. So if you have your Bibles, Mark chapter 2. If not, no big deal. We'll have the verses on the screens. A few days later, when Jesus again entered Capernaum, the people heard that he had come home. It was like a home base where Jesus often would come to. They gathered in such large numbers that there was no room left, not even outside the door. And he preached the word to them. Some men came bringing to him a paralyzed man carried by four of them. Since they could not get him to Jesus because of the crowd, they made an opening in the roof above Jesus by digging through it and then lowered the mat the man was lying on. When Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralyzed man, Son, your sins are forgiven. Now, we don't know if this man was paralyzed from birth or whether he was in an accident, but one thing we know, he can't walk. And he and his friends feared that without a miracle, he'll never, ever walk. And so when they heard Jesus was in town, man, they were filled with hope because they heard of all the incredible miracles that Jesus performed. And they were certain, given their faith, that the moment Jesus laid his eyes on this paralytic man, he would heal him of his immediate problem and eliminate the fear that comes with being a paralytic, especially in the first century. And so that's what they do. The four friends get together the mat, they go and get their paralyzed friend, they pick him up, place him on the mat, and then they go to where Jesus is going. Isn't that a beautiful picture of Christian community? Isn't that a beautiful picture of how we ought to help the less fortunate and then go to Jesus with our problems, right? And so they take their paralyzed friend with, on the mat and they go to where Jesus is. Unfortunately, as the passage tells us, the place is a full house. They realize there's no way we're getting him to Jesus. I mean, people are sitting on the windowsills. People are pressed up against that front door. There's no way, no how. And that's when they think and devise their bold plan. They're going to go on top of the roof. They're going to dig up op an opening in, in, into that roof and remove those ceiling tiles, if you will, and they're going to lower their paralytic down at the feet of Jesus. <laughs> that's a pretty bold plan. I mean, most homeowners don't like their roof just kind of torn open, right? And most paralytics don't like a one-way bungee jump through a ceiling cavity. And you know what? Most teachers don't like a public spectacle in the middle of their teaching. Now, we don't know the facial expressions of the homeowner or the paralytic, but Matthew all but paints a big old smile on Jesus' face as he's sitting there witnessing this incredible display of faith as he looks at this paralyzed man at his feet. And Matthew says, Matthew 9, verse 2, he says, Jesus looked at him and said, Take courage, your sins are forgiven. Notice, courage and grace together, keep that in mind. Now, I think the, the paralytic and his friends are a bit confused right about now. I think the paralytic was probably saying, that sounds nice and all, you know, forgiveness of sins, that's cool, that's great, sounds great. But, but I can't walk. 
I, I, I can't walk, Jesus, you know. I envision one of, their buddy, one of his buddies on the ceiling poking his head through that opening and yelling to his buddy, can you move your leg? And after his failed attempt, he shakes his head, no. And yet Jesus is looking at him and saying, take courage, your sins are forgiven. Your translation may say, take heart, be of good cheer. I'm thinking the paralytic is probably thinking, be of good cheer. How can I be of good cheer? I can't walk. I can't walk. And that presents all sorts of problems in the first century. He's probably thinking, I can't work because of my disability. I'm going to have to beg. I'll be a burden on my family. I'll probably never get married. I'm probably going to die alone. And his anxiety rised, probably, as he became consumed by the reality of his circumstance. I can't walk. And so when he hears, take courage, be of good cheer, he's probably thinking, really? Have you ever felt like that? As a believer, have you ever felt like that when you're reading through God's word and you come across a passage that says, be of good cheer? You're thinking, how can I be? Because of the circumstances, perhaps, that are challenging you. And so we have to ask, what is Jesus thinking here? You know what he's thinking? He's thinking that the immediate circumstance is not the most important in our lives. He's saying, I don't want you to be consumed with the circumstances that give rise to fear. I want you to be consumed by the good news. Your sins are forgiven. Now, that does not mean do not be concerned with your circumstances. It doesn't mean go ahead and ignore your circumstances. It just simply means don't be consumed by them where they Grip your heart and preoccupy your every thought because nothing good comes from that, right? Fear just breeds more fear. One of the great quotes of the 20th century, certainly ranking up there with all those great quotes of the 20th century was the quote from Franklin Delano Roosevelt when he was the president during the greatest depression this country has ever seen in the 1930s where so many Americans were gripped by fear. Remember what he said? He said, the only thing we have to fear is fear itself. And Jesus is saying, take courage, your sins are forgiven. He's saying, do not be preoccupied and consumed by the bad news and the difficult circumstances. He says, I want you to be preoccupied and consumed by the good news. It's the best news you will ever hear. Your sins are forgiven. And when we understand how good the good is, sometimes the bad just isn't so bad or so scary. I was heading to New York City uh, on an Amtrak train from Albany Rensselaer here to Penn Station. I had some meetings in New York, and so I was going by train. About midway to Penn Station, the train begins to slow down until it comes to an abrupt halt. And after several minutes, finally the conductor comes on the intercom and he says, I've got good news and I've got bad news. I'm going to give you the bad news first. He said, the bad news is the train engines are blown out. We're going to be here for a little while, about an hour before the other train comes and picks us up. Of course, everybody's moaning, you know. I think to myself, what good news can follow that? He says, the good news is you're not in a plane. I said, that is good news. 
I'm going to live today. It was amazing. It's perspective, isn't it? It's perspective. And I'll never forget how we all just kind of stopped complaining when he said that. In fact, some of us, including me, we just started laughing. That's, that's true. And when Jesus is saying to the paralytic, take courage, your sins are forgiven, he's saying, yeah, the, the bad news is your present circumstance, but the good news is your sins are forgiven. Take courage in that truth. You know, as Christians, the worst thing that can happen to us in this world is never the worst thing. You know what the worst thing is? That your sins are not forgiven. That's the worst thing. Oh, it doesn't get any worse than that. You see, what Jesus is thinking about here is the problem of sin. It's nothing more than this mindset that says, my will, God, not your will. I'll do things my way. Thank you very much, God. And it's when we get consumed, if you will, and, 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 and under this mindset that thinks, I got this covered, my circumstance. I'm just going to trust me in my circumstances rather than rest and trust in God through life's circumstances. It's all about me. I'll, I got this covered. That's it. And I don't know if you've ever thought of this, but that kind of mindset, my will, not your will, if that is the core of your life, the way you think, the way you act, I don't know if you've ever thought of this, but that will eventually, always, always, always eventually lead to fear, anxiety, and uncertainty in life. I mean, think of the very first time that fear surfaces in the Bible. It's, it's all the way back in Genesis chapter 3. God created the heavens and the earth. He created the world perfect in the beginning. Genesis 1.31, he stepped back after, after creation. He said, it's good. It's good. And he gave Adam and Eve full reign over paradise. They could do anything they want. They had full reign to enjoy life as was given to them. But God said, do not do this one thing. Do not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Do, don't do it. Don't do it. Of course, what did they do? They went ahead and did exactly what God told them not to do. They desired the fruit more than they desired God. They desired their will more than they desired the very will of God. And you know what followed? Fear. Take a look at it with me. Verse 8, Genesis chapter 3. Right after that, disobedience and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. Then the Lord God called to the man and said to him, where are you? He said, I heard the sound of you in the garden. And there it is. I was afraid. Fear followed sin and Adam went hiding. Now, before we get too hard on Adam, let me ask you a question. How would you feel in your own strength, in your own goodness, good works, if you will, how would you feel coming face to face with the living God? Right now, just you and God, the creator of the heavens and the earth, this awesome powerful being who knows your every thought and seen your every deed and whose standard is perfection. How would you feel? I, I don't know about you, but I'd be scared to death. Man, I'd be hiding with Adam in the bushes. No, in fact, I'd probably be hiding behind Adam in the bushes. <laughs> you say, why? Because he's God and I'm not. 
Because his standard is perfection, and I fall so short of God's glory. In fact, the Bible tells us that we all do. That's why I need Jesus. In fact, Jesus himself says in Matthew 10, 28, look at it with me. He says, do not be afraid of those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, be afraid of the one who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Ooh. The writer of Hebrews chapter 10, he says, if you want to live a life that's all about you, 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 my will, not your will, my will, not your will, my will, not your will, he concludes verse 31 saying this, it is a dreadful, fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Now, here's the good news. The good news is when we put our faith in trust in Christ, we don't have to fear that. God doesn't want us running away from him. He wants us running toward him. Jesus came to seek and save the lost. He came on a rescue mission. He didn't come to the world to condemn it. He came to the world to save the world. And when we put our faith and trust in him, Paul says, there's no condemnation. There's no condemnation to those who put their faith in Christ. And so one day, when we find ourselves face to face with the living God, we can stand with confidence. Not because of what we have done, but because of what Jesus did for us. And when, Jesus, when God looks at us, he will not see my imperfections even though they're there. He will see the righteousness of Jesus whose righteousness has been given and imputed to me. Now hear me, friends, that is good news. And when Jesus is talking to that paralytic and saying, take courage, your sins have been forgiven, Jesus is saying, that is the best news you will ever receive this side of eternity. And when you understand how good the good news is, the bad news, yeah, it's challenging. Yeah, it's tough. But the bad news just don't seem so bad as we put our faith and our trust in the one who gives us the strength to persevere. I was speaking last week at the Greenbush campus to a wonderful couple, Dave and Diane Hansen. And I was asking them how they're holding up under the pressures of a, of a recent circumstance that they're having to endure. See, Diane in 2016 was diagnosed with a rare disease that attacks her lungs. It's related to her rheumatoid arthritis that she's had for, for years. And I, I said, hey, how you guys doing? And she goes, you know, you have your good days, you've got your bad days, but God is holding us up just fine. And then she said something I think is pretty profound. She said, you know, courage is only made possible through life's challenges. 
She goes, I've been a Christian for 25 years, and this is just another opportunity for me to show other people what my faith is made of. I know in the end, everything will be fine. Man, that's like courage, right? She says it with a smile. Her husband, Dave, right after she said that, put his hand up to his face. And he says, the things that happen to us in this world, they're like right here. The bad news, the tough circumstances, the challenges of life, the things that make us anxious because we feel like we're losing control, they're right in our face. And he then puts his hand down. He goes, that's when we just kind of look up to God and trust him and depend on him and we experience a peace that's just hard to express. And then he said this, in light of the eternal hope we have in Christ, he said, all this is but a blink of an eye. I said, that's it. That's exactly it. When you understand how good the good news is, and when we put our faith and trust in his good news, our Lord and Savior, the bad news, even though it's real, the bad news, even though it's tough, just don't seem so bad. You know, the principle in this passage is foundational to Christian courage. It's absolutely foundational to it. When we understand as Christians, the worst thing this world can throw at us is not the worst thing in light of the eternal hope we have in him, that just gives us courage in and of itself as we depend and trust on our Lord. I'm always amazed by the Apostle Paul. I mean, the Apostle Paul had some things to be afraid about, didn't he? I mean, he was persecuted, he was beaten and left for dead, he was thrown into prison, and the Apostle Paul would say, for me to live is Christ. For me to die is gain. What do you do with somebody like that? What do you do with that? He embodies courage because he gets this principle so perfectly. Max Lucado in his book, Fearless, wonderful book, highly recommended, said this, when Christ is great in our lives, fear is not. As awe of Jesus expands, fear of life diminishes. Jesus says, take courage. I just handed you the best news you will ever get this side of eternity. Your sins are forgiven. Now, you know, there's an interesting point that I want to make about this passage, and it's this. I don't, it, it, it's that Jesus forgives the paralytic without him asking for it. Did you catch that? Paralytic does not ask to be forgiven. And yet Jesus forgives. What's going on there? It doesn't happen anywhere else in the Gospels. It's the only place. Well, we know in verse 5, it says that Jesus sees their faith. And we're going to learn shortly here in verse 8 that Jesus has the ability, he's God in a body, he has the ability to, to, to know the hearts and minds of men. And so Jesus saw and he knew and he responded to the faith that he saw there. But the point is, he did it without any words being uttered. Forgive me. 
And I think it's just another glimpse into the kindness of our Heavenly Father. He's so eager and willing to forgive and give mercy even when the words do not come out. As pastor and author Tim Keller, Dr. Tim Keller is a pastor in the New York City area, said about this passage, he said, Jesus perceived in his heart, meaning the paralytic's heart, a partial, fragmented, inarticulate longing for grace and mercy, and he, Jesus, responded to it, even as inarticulate as it was. And then he says, Jesus is so eager and willing and ready to forgive and embrace even when the words do not come out. It's just another glimpse into how kind our God is. You know, of all the interactions that Jesus has with those in the middle of life's fears, you see his kindness, his compassion, his tenderness. I mean, when the disciples were scared to death that this boat is going down, what does Jesus do? He calms the storm. We read of a passage of a man who's suffering from leprosy. It was a horrible disease. And he was no doubt fearful and anxious over his condition. He was ostracized from society. Nobody would dare get near him. Probably hadn't had a human touch in years. And what's Jesus do? He goes over to him and touches him and heals him. He didn't have to touch him. He could have healed him from a distance, but he touches him. Why? Because God cares and values every human being. He wanted to connect with him on a personal level. That's the kind of God we serve. He's so tender. And when Jairus was gripped by fear at the words, your daughter is dead, Jesus looks at him and says, do not be afraid, just believe. And then he walks home with Jairus to where his daughter is. And he walks into the home and he takes Jairus' hand and he takes his wife's hand and they go to where their daughter is dead. And Jesus walks over to that little girl and he says in the most tender parental words as one commentary writer translated it, honey, time to get up. And he raises her from the dead and he places her hand into the hands of her loving parents and he walks away. He didn't have to do any of that. But he does. Because he is a kind and a tender and a loving, and a compassionate God. And in this passage, even when the words don't come out, he forgives. He gives mercy. Take courage. Your sins are forgiven. Now, when Jesus said that, the teachers of the law the religious leaders that were present in that home when Jesus was teaching, they were a bit upset about that. Pick up the passage, verse six, as we come to a conclusion. Now some teachers of the law were sitting there thinking to themselves, why does this fellow talk like that? He's blaspheming. 
Who can forgive sins but God alone? That is a true statement. No one can forgive sins except for God. They just didn't believe Jesus was God in a body. Immediately, Jesus knew in his spirit that this was what they were thinking in their hearts, right? He can read their mind. They're not saying anything audibly. He knows what they're thinking. And he said to them, why are you thinking these things? Which is easier, to say to this paralyzed man, your sins are forgiven, or to say, get up, take your mat, and walk. But I want you to know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sin. So he said to the man, I tell you, get up, take your mat, and go home. He got up, took his mat, and walked out in full view of them all. This amazed everyone, and they praised God, saying, we have never seen anything like that. I bet you haven't. Wow. It's an interesting question that Jesus poses here. Which is easier? To heal or to forgive Sins. Now, I, I don't know, my mind goes here sometimes, and I, I just got to take you with me, okay? I just, I'm thinking about this moment. The paralyzed man is just still lying there. And Jesus just starts saying, which is easier, to heal or to forgive? Nobody asked a question. Nobody said anything. It's just silent. And then Jesus, because he can read your mind, he just starts. And I wonder what that paralytic must have felt when he, when he heard Jesus say, which is easier to heal? And when he heard that, heal, I wonder if, I wonder if his head went like, heal? Did somebody say heal? Is, is, am I maybe going to get healed? I don't know. But it's interesting. And Jesus asked this interesting question, which is easier to heal or to forgive? Now, we hear that, we think, man, neither are easy. They're both hard. Dr. Lloyd-Jones, the late Dr. Lloyd-Jones, he was a medical doctor and a preacher. He once made a provocative statement, provocative for effect. He said, the only problem God has is the problem of forgiveness. Knowing that an omnipotent God cannot have a problem, but he's saying it for effect. And what he meant is this. Jesus cannot just say, your sins are forgiven. Because God is a just God, and there must be penalty for sin. And so when Jesus says, take courage, your sins are forgiven, what he's doing is he's pointing to Calvary. He's pointing to the cross. And what he's saying is, take courage, I'm going to die for your sins. He's a sacrificial God, right? And so clearly to the question, which is easier to forgive? He's been forgiving all the time. Or, I'm sorry, which is easier to heal? He's been healing all the time. Or to forgive, clearly forgiveness is harder. Healing is easier. But the religious leaders, they can't see. We can't visually see. Your sins are forgiven. You can't see it. So I wonder if Jesus looked at that paralyzed man and said something like this. I don't know. I wonder if he said, hey, I got to quiet the naysayers here. I want you to understand, you, I, just, I gave you what I think is most important. The priority of God is established in, the, in what Jesus did here. In the midst of real challenges and real struggles, this man is paralyzed. He breezed over his paralysis, not because he don't care for him, but because he knows what the biggest, most important issue is, and that is your soul. 
That is, your sins are forgiven. As Dave said in that story I just told you about, he said, in light of eternity, this life is but a blink of an eye. That's right. Jesus is concerned big time with eternity. So I wonder if he said, you know, that's what's most important. And if you draw near to me, I'll give you the strength to persevere through anything. That's what's most important. But, but, listen, I'm going to quiet these guys down. You okay if I heal you? Yeah, yeah, I think healing's good. I think healing would be really wonderful. And he heals them. But understand where his first priority lied. I mean, think about it. If, you, if he had a choice, if you and I had a choice, wouldn't we say, hey, I'd rather have eternal hope? I mean, you can heal this man and not have eternal hope, and in two weeks from now, he'll have another problem that will scare him. Life's full of them. God's priorities established. But what an incredible story. And so I want to end where, where I started with this question. How do we have more courage in the midst of life's fears? How can we not be so fearful in the middle of real, immediate, in-your-face circumstances that scare us? By receiving his grace in Christ Jesus and by drawing near to him. Seek him, trust him, depend upon him, and he will give you a peace and a strength that surpasses all understanding. In fact, when you look at the stories in the Gospels of where Jesus is commanding, do not be afraid, do not be afraid, do not be afraid, it's full of people that are running to Jesus in the midst of their fear. The disciples, as that boat is about to sink, are running to Jesus. Jairus, when he, hear, when he sees that his daughter's about to die, runs to Jesus. The paralytic who's fearful of his reality, I can't walk, him and his friends, what do they do? They run to Jesus in an incredibly bold way. And Jesus says to us, he says, in the midst of your worries, in the midst of your circumstances, he says, seek first the kingdom and its righteousness. He says, come to me, all of you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. He says, come to me and I will give you a peace. In the midst of the realities of our circumstances, a peace that surpasses all understanding. You know, I always remember the poise and the courage that my wife Lisa displayed in the darkest hour of our 21 years of marriage, when our daughters, Gianna and Michaela, were born 10 years ago. And I know a number of you know the story. The prognosis was not good. They were born over three months premature, about a pound each, and we were in the NICU for months, over 100 days. Some days were good. Some days were bad. But every single day was marked by uncertainty of never knowing whether your daughters were going to come home. And that's kind of scary. But I always remember how my wife, Lisa, clung to her faith. Kind of like what Diane said. You know, I've been a Christian for 25 years. This is just an opportunity for me to shine for God. And I think that's how my wife felt. And she pursued her God in prayer and in meditating on the word. In fact, she had these little, little tape recorders. I don't, even think, I don't even know if they make them anymore. These little tape recorders. And she would record herself praying 
And she would record herself reading scriptures. She had two of them. And then she would put them in those little incubators and play them and rotate them out every few days. She never left their side. She was always at the NICU. I mean, she'd come home to change and clean and, and so forth, but she was generally there. She was like one of the staff. She never left. She knew the night shift. She knew the day shift. And she always had a smile, a sense of purpose, a deep sense of peace. And even when the worst news came for us at that time, and Gianna passed away two and a half months Later, after complications, my wife just clung to her faith. In fact, she memorized many of these do not be afraid commands. And she had a deep sense of peace that's hard to explain. But a lot of peace. The day after Gianna died, I was talking to some nurses in the hallway there at the NICU. And they were offering their condolences. And, and then they just turned and talked about my wife. And they said, my goodness, she is, she's just incredible. I mean, she's positive. She has a sense of humor with us. She has an incredible peace, they said about her. I mean, one, just very genuinely just thought my wife was medicated. And that's okay. She wasn't. And I said, you know she's a believer. Oh, my goodness, yeah, we know she's a believer. I said, it's just my wife just being close to her God. You know what my wife did during that dark hour? And so many believers I know do this so beautifully. You know what she did? She focused and consumed herself with the good news. His grace, his truth, his providence, his power, his peace, while not being consumed by the in-your-face reality that scares us all. Was she concerned about the circumstance? You bet. Did she ignore the circumstance? Of course not. She never left the NICU. But she was not consumed by it. Why? Because she was consumed by the good news. And when you get how good the good is, the bad just don't seem so bad I'm going to close with this verse. It's another one of those do not be afraid passages that Jesus gives. John 16, 33. He said, in this world you will have trouble. Now you may, you will. It's a fallen world. That's the bad news. But he says, but take heart. There it is. But take courage. But be of good cheer. I have over." Come the world. And listen, when we put our faith and trust and dependency on him, he makes every one of us an overcomer. And that's the good news that makes the bad not seem so bad. Friends, he is a God worth our trust. Let's pray. Father God, your word is so powerful, so poignant. And Father, I don't know where everyone is in their walk with you, 
My prayer, Father, is that people would understand how much you love them in Christ and that the love of Christ would draw them near to you. And Father, only you know the circumstances, the challenges, the problems that are scaring us. And my prayer right now, Father, is that everyone who hears my voice would feel your calling on their lives and that they would be drawn ever so closer to you and that you would give them a peace that surpasses all understanding. And for that, we give you all the praise and all the glory we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.